John chapter 5, verses 25 to 29. This world is, wow, that's a lot of kids and people. (laughs) Good morning, remnant. (laughs) This world is filled with false hopes. Filled. This week, our culture is filled with false hopes. I don't know about you, my mailbox has been overflowing with false hopes recently. Um, I don't know if any of you have experienced the same thing. I have probably received more election flyers this year than all the years previously combined. I don't know what happened. Uh, I got on somebody's list somewhere. Every day, it's got to be about half a dozen of them filling up my mailbox. And all of them go straight to the recycling now because that's my civic duty. (laughs) I don't care if I agree or not agree. They're false hopes. Because in the end, they disappoint. It doesn't matter if they work temporally for a while. A thousand years from now, it will mean nothing. And when we as Christians lockstep with certain things, one of the things that happens is we lose sight of what true hope really is. And in the gospel, as we were just singing, by the way, thank you, Rick, for writing that song. It is a marvelous one. Uh, On the subject of the book of Philippians, the joy of the gospel, the gospel itself does not allow us to attach eternal hopes to fleeting aspects. Let me explain what I mean by that. The gospel will not allow us to simply attach our hopes to things that will disappoint. The gospel encourages us to see eternity. That God has created us with eternity in our hearts, and therefore, in the gospel, we are not seeing temporal hopes. We are not seeing, here's a way to make your life better, and then the grave, well, it'll take you out. We know that. But let me say one thing. One of the most tragic things about the hope of the gospel is that it has been diverted. In some situations, it has been diverted to things that are, by marked nature, temporal. Whether it is cultural movements, whether it is philosophy, whether it is scholasticism, or whether it is politics. None of these things are the fulfillment of the gospel, but let me take it one step further. While we may know that, one of the things that has become quite slang in churches is to look at the hope of the gospel as, do you know where you are going when you die? And I'm sure all of us have heard this terminology. While it is a true statement, it is not a complete statement. And I want to emphasize this severely this morning because it is one of those things that gets said so often that we don't really think about the ramifications of it. God did not create us for heaven. Stick with me. Don't lose me. He created us for the ground and the earth. He created us to be in concert with him where heaven and earth overlap. This is what the Garden of Eden was. If you're not realizing it, this is also what the church is. It's what the tabernacle was. It's what the temple was. It was the place where heaven and earth overlapped. We were to live physical, spiritual lives. And what I think a lot of the overstatement of people have tried to explain is, try to separate us from the physical as much as possible and make our entire Christian life just the spiritual Some to the extent that they say it doesn't matter what you do in the body. It just matters how much you love Jesus. That's not true. Those who love Jesus follow his commands. It affects their lives. It affects their livelihoods. It affects the way they treat their children and strangers on the the street. We cannot live purely separate spiritual lives that have no bearing in our physical world because we were made to live as physical and spiritual beings. But what happens when we die? What happens when we die? What happens to our physical bodies? Correct. Are we finished with the body then? Are we finished with the body? 
Because the way I will tell you, the way many people talk about it is finally suffering is done and I'm done with this world and I'm done with that body. Now I will be in my ultimate state, spiritual. Have you heard this? Yes. Is that the end of the Christian existence? Is that the end of the gospel? Is that the end of our story? What else happens after that? Is that the end of the story? Yes. Are our bodies finished? He prepares mansions for us and place to go. What of our bodies? Physical bodies turn into a spiritual body. We become, and those that are here on earth that are still in a spiritual physical body get transformed immediately in a twinkling of an eye. What of the resurrection of the dead? The physical body gets turned into a spiritual body. What of the earth? Just a heavens or new earth too? You're talking about a lot of stuff that's way beyond human comprehension. Correct. And so is Jesus speaking of it today in today's passage. And so when he speaks of the resurrection from the dead, we have to address the reality that the end hope of the Christian is not met the moment we die. That is an unfulfilled, unfinished state. It's not the last thing to happen. The last thing to happen is the resurrection from the dead of all people. Daniel 12, you can go back and read it this evening if you would like. The thing that happens at the end of the age is the expression that all who lay to rest in the dirt will rise and present themselves before the Lord. Both reprobate and saved. And the reality is that we do not live complete states until then. We were designed to live in the new heavens and the new earth, the place where God has his existence with his people. Christ today still has that overlap of physical and spiritual. He still bears the marks of the cross. As we even saw in his resurrection, he was not an apparition as they assumed. He was not a ghost. No, he bore the signs of the cross. He bore still in his side the puncture wounds. Why? Because the reality is that Christ is not just Lord of heaven, but Lord of heaven and earth. This is what we pray in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? May God's will be done in heaven and on earth. The reality is we desire to live with God in a place where we understand and know him. We were not created to just simply leave our bodies behind. And that is the promise of resurrection. And Christ makes no bones about it. I want you to see it here in John chapter 5. Stand in honor of God and his word with me, if you will, please. John chapter 5, verses 25 to 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming... And is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for this passage. We're grateful for the words of Christ. We are grateful for the hopes that do not disappoint. Father, that although we lay our head down in our grave, we will hear your voice still again and raise to walk in the newness of life, the Christian life even now, simply a foretaste of the fellowship that we will know with you in that unveiled state. Father, it is beyond our estimation for how you will do this or how it will be. But that does not diminish your promises, nor does it take away from us the clarity of what your word continually promises, that those who are in the tombs, those who are in the grave, will one day rise again, Christ being simply the firstfruits of those who will see with new eyes, a new heaven and a new earth. Father, we thank you for this. 
We thank you for the promises eternal, lives that cannot be destroyed, and death will be no more, and tears that you personally will wipe away from us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the freedom, the promise that it brings. We thank you for the clarity of new lives. We pray for these things manifested in our presence this morning. In your son's name, amen. Amen. When we talk about the resurrection from the dead, it's one of those things that usually gets a footnote. And it usually gets passed over pretty quick. But the reality is that if we do not have resurrection from the dead, then a lot of the promises in the gospel of eternal living and eternal life, and even the new heavens and the new earth, the tree of life that we are to partake from, its leaves bringing healing, its fruit bringing eternal existence, the waters of life proceeding from the throne of God, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth, fully overlapping where God dwells with his people. These things, these things will surely come to pass. What is it that Jesus is saying and why is it he's saying these things now? We've been walking through so many of the witnesses that John is presenting us with so that we would understand, know who Jesus of Nazareth is and as our sermon series title is, that you may believe and live. That you may rely upon this Christ and have life that cannot be taken away. Indestructible living. Indestructible life. But as Christians, we still face mortality, don't we? Don't we? Imagine how big the church would be if... and. If we were immediately immortal the moment we become saved. We have a lot of Christians sitting around, very old Christians. It would be self-referential, self-clarifying, exactly. But the early church was most confused about what was to happen. Because once we came to salvation, what of Christians who die? And it's one of those questions where we've gotten so used to it, we almost answer it the way our society answers it, rather than how scripture addresses it rather than how Scripture addresses it. Because what does Scripture say? The church in Thessalonica was frustrated with this reality. Will those Christians who die a physical death miss out on the return of Christ? And Paul writes 1 Thessalonians to them, interacting with them. He talks, the vast majority of the book is dealing with the reality of resurrection. What he says is, Do not be ignorant on this. Those who are asleep in Christ will indeed precede us. There will be resurrection from the dead. Do not lose heart. Do not lose friends and acquaintances as if there's no hope. My friends, it doesn't stop at the grave, this life. And while we go to heaven when we die, that is not the ultimate state. Otherwise, there's no purpose for the resurrection. And what does Jesus say? There is coming a day. There is a coming a day when I will call every single person out of the graves, whether they have Christ on their account or whether they do not. As he says in the old covenant here before the cross, whether they've done good or they've done bad. And you say, wait, so it's all about works? No, no, no. What is on our account in Christ? But absolute perfection. Outside of Christ, no matter how much good you've done, evil. Salvation is thoroughly dependent upon Christ. It is why believing on him is the only way such life comes. The only way such righteousness comes. Let us not make the mistake that our culture attempts to make. That the body is unimportant. The body is important. If the body is unimportant, then the original creation wasn't actually very good, was it? The body is important. God had gifted it to us. God has so seen it fit that that is not the end state. Lest what happened to Lazarus was actually a negative. No. 
The separated state is not the eternal state. The separation between body and soul is not natural. We weren't supposed to die. You remember this? Genesis 3, the separation from the tree of life was a grave mercy. Lest we should live in physical, spiritual bodies forever with the presence of sin. No. Sin is a part, as Paul constantly reminds us, a part of our members, our hands, feet, our eyes, our mouth, our tongues, everything about us still carries the marks and the bearings of sins. Do you know this? This is why Christians ought never to live without confession. This is why Christians ought never to live without repentance. We always have need of things to repent of. We always have need of seeing the forgiveness of Christ all over us. There is a great mercy in the great enemy of death. And that is that while our bodies and our sins go to the grave, only our bodies rise and our sins stay in the grave. Do you know that in the eternal state, there will no longer be a fall? There is just the tree of life. There's not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The former things having passed away. All things, all things having been made new again. It is talked about so little in churches that many have assumed that God simply is interested in the spiritual aspects of our lives rather than the physical and spiritual aspects of our lives. What we do in the body matters and affects the spiritual. What we do in the spiritual matters and affects the physical. We cannot draw a distinction there lest we die. It's the only, dis- the only place where we get separated out. At the grave. And that is not our designed place. Watch what he says here. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, he is foreshadowing something that he's about to do. He's foreshadowing something. He's already healed multiple people. One that was on the brink of death. But as far as for a full-on resurrection, we haven't seen that one yet. But for those of you who know the story of the Gospel of John, know he is foreshadowing something he is about to do. Yes, that hour is here. And Christ will demonstrate not only that power of the Son of Man, that there's an indestructible life attached to his promises, but he's just going to walk up to a tomb of somebody who's been dead for four days. And what is he going to say? Anyone remember the story from Sunday school? Lazarus, come out. Just come out. Now, if you walked up to the tomb and said that, what would happen? Nothing. Your words have no power. None. And if your words do have power, then I want to see it demonstrated, please. Here, the word of life incarnate is going to walk up to a tomb and he's going to command something that cannot hear to pay attention, follow his commands, something that cannot walk to get up and walk out, something that is dead to return to life again. Is Lazarus going to go, you know what? That sounds like a good thing. I think, you know, I've had enough of this tomb. I'm going to get up. I'm going to open up this tomb. I'm going to get out of here. Is that the power by which he was raised from the dead? No. It's the word of God incarnate who comes and commands a dead man to come out of the tomb. Notice he does not command him to rise from the dead. It is intrinsic in the command that God is bringing this reality about. And what is Jesus saying about this here back in John chapter 5? He is foreshadowing this reality. There is coming a day. Oh yeah, and there's foretastes of it even now. In the ministry of Jesus as he's standing there. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Past tense. It's already in him, this life. 
Which means everything that Jesus is doing in his ministry is leading up to this reality. Not only with the culmination of the signs that Jesus is showing in the Gospel of John, which is the raising of Lazarus to the dead, but the culmination of all the things that happen in the Gospel of John, which is Christ himself raising from the dead. It is what it is all looking forward to. Remember, the Gospel of John starts out with expressing who Christ is and what he has done. In the beginning was what? The Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. How many things were made through him? All things. Not anything was made unless it was made through him. Which means every living thing and every non-living thing. He has been a source of life since before the world was. Which means this life has always been in him. And now that he's walking around in human flesh, what should we expect? But that every single thing he does is bent towards pushing people to life. The turning of the water to wine, an enjoyment of life. God's blessing and provision. The fruit of the vine, which is indescribably marvelous throughout the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. But giving a man sight, giving a man ability to walk, all of these, as we've seen, are creation things. You can't just take somebody who's been paralyzed for 38 years and all of a sudden tell them to walk. I mean, you could puppet them around, but they need muscles, they need balance, they need everything. The reality is that as Christ is speaking to them, he is speaking to them as their creator. He was the one from which life and through which life came. And so, as we work up to what John is talking about, trusting in him brings this life to us. Those who seek to preserve their life, Christ will say at a later point, will lose it. But those who lose their life for my sake will find it. How can he say these things? Because if the promise of all of our life is relegated only to the physical existence, we've missed the gospel. And may I say, if the promise of the spiritual life is only relegated to the spiritual, we have lost the gospel. Christ did not come and simply appear as a man. He actually was born as one. Born as a baby, born under the law to redeem us out from under the law. We are about to approach Christmas season where we spend almost an entire month set aside celebrating this reality that heaven and earth once again have overlapped in the very person of Christ who came as one of us, not just an appearance of a man, not an apparition that looked like he had flesh and bones. No, no, no. Actual, physical God walking around. That should blow our minds because he actually grew in wisdom and stature. He was born as a baby that didn't know how to walk. The one who made feet. He hungered. He thirsted. He needed sleep. He knows what it's like to be made from the dust. He knows our frame and our frailty. And still, life comes through him. The Father, verse 27, has given the Son authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he is the Son of Man. What is that reference? We've been to it before. I say one of the most important prophecies in the Old Testament is Daniel chapter 7. The prophecy of the Son of Man, the one who in the appearance of a man presents himself before the Ancient of Days and is given everlasting dominions and kingdoms and things without end. One who has both human characteristics and divine characteristics. And Daniel 7 is absolutely impossible to understand before the Incarnation. Absolutely impossible. Nobody foresaw that it was God himself who was going to walk amongst us. And that would be the Messiah. That salvation coming to Israel would not stop at Jerusalem, but would also go to Judea, and then Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the world. 
and save not just the people of Israel, but instead Gentiles, Parthians, Medes, Persians, Greeks, Romans, Scythians, slave and free, male and female, everywhere, throughout all places, everywhere in the earth. Why? Because it is a foretaste of the glory divine that will enrapture the whole of the universe. God will save his people. And this is the one through whom it is done. And in order for a a promise of salvation to exist past the grave, there has to be more than just going to heaven when we die. In this created world, there has to be. Why? Because God has told us there is. Directly. Dozens of times. Why? Folks, do not look at this earth as though it is a crumbling mess of a place. This earth is the handiwork of our God. The glory that's in it is his. And what beauty is in it is divine. Fallen, yes. So are we. Do not look at one another and think, wow, what crumbling facades of self-righteous people. No. Love each other because Christ first loved us. See in each other what Christ sees. And that is his righteousness and his glory showing through a veil of flesh. Do not make calls on each other on the basis of what sins and weaknesses we have. I've got a thousand of them. You think you know my weaknesses. I could introduce you to all sorts of them. I know my sins very well, and unfortunately they know me very well. But I am defined by Christ. He is my identity. He is my life. And it is God's glory that will raise me on the last day. We cannot define ourselves by the things that we do any more than we can define ourselves by our position in heaven. We define ourselves by Christ and his promises, which affects both our position in heaven and what we do. Notice, if you will, the promise of Christ to be with us till the end of the age. And what does, he connect, what does he connect that to but his very words and commands that he has given to his people? Go out into all the world, says the Great Commission. Actually, if you look at the tenses of the verb, is as you're going into all the world, teach them whatsoever I have commanded you. Make disciples of all nations. My commands that I have given you, teach them Because the reality is that the way we live in this world has eternal ramifications. Just as the sufferings in this life have eternal ramifications. We talked about this last week. We look at our lives and we say, why am I suffering thus? Why do I have to face this stress? Why do I have to face this loss? The emptiness of asking why. The reality is that the grace of God And the glory of God will be known by you in a different way than somebody without that suffering. And it will be worth all of it. That should tell us not that our sufferings are little, but that the glories that will be revealed to us are beyond our imaginations and beyond our access at this point. Look at what the Father has given to the Son The Son of Man has been given the authority to execute judgment. You say, I thought Jesus just was okay with everybody. No. Jesus is Savior of his people. That's his very name. Jesus. Savior. He is the very Savior of his people. But he is also the judge of the earth. That every single man, woman, and child will stand before What does he say? He makes no bones about it. He says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of Man. And they will come out 
whether they want to or not, they will come out of their tombs, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Which one are you outside of Christ? Evil. From the day I was born to the day I die, even if you only include my best day, evil. We do not have hope outside of Christ. So how is it he can say that there are those who will come out of the tomb who have done good? Sometimes it falls on us. And if we have this this welling up of self-righteousness in any way, it'll speak to us and, well, here's, here's a good day I had. Here's some good works I've done. Here's some good stuff that's happened. Is that what he's basing this on? No. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. How can you transfer from those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment? I would assume we would all want to see the resurrection of life, yes? How does one achieve such a thing? How does one come to such a thing? And that is why I say when we talk about the gospel, it must be put on these terms. How is it that we achieve life like that? It's the very point of the entire gospel of John that you may believe on him and live. John saw it so fit that people would know the clarity of these things. Not only the clarity, but the testimony of these things. And not only the testimony, but the veracity of these things. They would know that they're the truth. And then beyond that, that he himself, capital T, truth, would set them free. Sometimes when we face our own mortality, the reality of death presents itself in a new way. And it makes us ask questions about how much we know of certain things. And we have to face the reality that we're actually not certain about many things because certainty comes from experience. We are assured of things because of the testimony of God. And assurance to people in our culture feels a lot less than certainty, doesn't it? It's the same interaction we have with miracles. When I ask you, did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, what's your response? Are you certain of that or are you sure of that? Are two different responses, whether you know it. We are assured of that because we've been told about it. Did you experience it? Did you see it? Did you verify it? No, we have to admit that there is some distance there, isn't there? But we have been assured by a faithful presenter of truth, God himself, in his word, that that truly did happen. And so if you ask me if I'm standing outside of Bethany and seeing this tomb, would I have seen that man walk out of there? Absolutely. I am assured of that. When we face our own mortality... The distinction between what we're assured of and what our experience has been really comes to call. Because what we will experience is beyond any experience we've had. And so we try to hammer down certainties. But there's very few things that God tells us about that state. One of them was already quoted, Shirley. Thank you for that. To be absent from the body is present with the Lord. But as Jesus is saying right here, that's not the end of the story. Those who are in the tomb will raise to the resurrection of life. Do not bypass that as though it is a side note. It is the culminating event that brings in the reality of God living with his people in a permanent physical spiritual state. What will that be like? I have no idea. I have no idea. The Bible talks about it in very shielded terms because to be perfectly honest, it's trying to keep us from establishing that it's already happening right this second. As though this is the eternal state, which many people throughout church history have thought. What a sad thing for this world to be groaning for all eternity. Isn't that what Romans 8 says? That we in our bodies groan inwardly along with all of creation, waiting for the time when all of this will come to its consummation, where 
heaven and earth will be made one, where the earth will be recreated and our bodies raised to new life. Right now, in this physical state, we groan, don't we? It's frustrating to live in breaking down bodies. The the lie of youth is that it will always continue this way. Everything will keep getting better. I'll keep getting taller and stronger and better. How many of us who have passed the age of 25 know that, oh, it kind of just crests? And for some of us goes, and for some of us goes. And we start losing things that were important to us, things that we loved, things that we hoped in. But the reality is, as we continue to mature in Christ, we realize everything we place our hope in in this temporal world will be taken away from us. Except those hopes that last. And this is what Christ is enduring to his people. Do not forget that even coming into your own grave, that's not the end. You will come out of that grave and present yourself before the Lord pleading what? Your righteousness? I pray never enter your mind to plead yours. I pray that the more you read God's word, the less of you you see and the more of Christ you see. I pray that your focus and mine and this church's focus will not be self or even each other in the ultimate sense, but Christ. And out of that, because he loves you, Linda, my fellowship with you is increased. Victor, the same for you. Todd, the same for you. John, the same for you. The same for every one of you who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Why is it fellowship can work at all? It's not because we find those that agree with us. It is because we have found Christ. And Christ has saved people that are not like you and me. Believe it or not, Christians are wrong about things. Christians sin. Christians disappoint each other. Because the everlasting hopes are not found in these sinful fellowships. The everlasting hopes are found in Christ. One day, my friends, not just me and you, but all of us, all who have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout all the world, both now, in the past, and yet to come, will have a perfect fellowship as we live with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The end of the scriptures say, in that world there is no need for a temple anymore. Think about that language. No more need of a temple. Why? What's the purpose of a temple? It's the overlap of heaven and earth. No need for a temple. Why? Because God himself will be the temple and he will dwell with his people without end. That's the resurrection that Jesus is talking about. And he's blowing their minds with it because the reality is not a lot of that was taught in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 12 certainly clearly, clearly speaks on it, but it was not a major focus of those who lived in Israel. And so what Christ says, you want a major focus? The Father has given to the Son not only the ability to raise those to life that go to their grave, in good righteousness. But he's given them the authority to raise to life those who have done evil to a resurrection, not of life, but of judgment. You say, well, that doesn't really preach very nice. I have heard someone say that you will never ever bring people to salvation if you just threaten them with the fires of hell. No. No, I won't. God does. And the reality is this. That those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved have fellowship with the Father and the Son to look forward to the moment they pass. Whatever that fellowship looks like. And the resurrection from the dead and forever living with the Lord in the new heavens and new earth. Whatever that looks like. Those who do not, it is clearly true on the flip side, 
will not be in the presence of him who lives forever, but instead will receive exactly what they wanted. Not God. And not his promises. And they too will raise to walk to judgment. What does that look like? What will it be? Let us stick with Jesus here just for this morning and sit in the reality of it, assured to us by the one who will command it. It is oftentimes expressed that Jesus is kind of a weak beggar that is asking people, please, please follow me. No. The overarching command of his entire ministry and of his teaching is found in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Repent and believe in the gospel. They are command terms, as all the gospel always has been. Do not trust in your lack of sinfulness or the presence of goodness. Turn from those false hopes. Turn instead to God and his promises. Believe in the gospel, the good news. Believe in Christ himself, the embodiment of all good news and the very word of God himself. Depend on his resurrection. Depend on his promises, his righteousness, not ours, and his true statements rather than ours. We are assured of these things at the core of Scripture. We are not assured to them so that we may live in a prideful state, walking around and lording this over people who do not trust in the Lord Christ. No, we compel people to know Christ. We reason with them from the Scriptures if they're open to it. We express to them the realities of the Gospel and the lack of hope that we actually have. Outside of Christ. But it is a remarkable thing because as Christ is working through these things, he does not allow them to express that life for them is simply relegated to this world only. And it is his primary audience that struggles with this reality because they're looking at their lives, well, maybe I can just do enough good things and God is happy with me. We all know that feeling, don't we? I did a good job this week, God's smiling. I did a bad job this week, God's not smiling. Careful with this. God's approval of us is not predicated on our performance. God's approval of us is set at the cross. We do not follow the law out of fear anymore. We follow the law because we know it's consistent with life. And we know that it gives a freedom. So much so that James, in the book of James, chapter 1, expresses the reality that the law for us as Christians has become something new, a law of liberty. We know that when God says something, it's not him being a cosmic killjoy, it's him setting us free to know what the path of life actually is because sin continually shreds our souls. It is a frustrating thing, is it not? to groan alongside all of creation and wish for a day where I could live a life in pure fellowship and sinlessness every single day. And yet we cannot muster a single one in this life, can we? It is a frustration that we will die with, but we will rise to know not that frustration. This is one of those aspects of the Christian walk that continually challenges me and continually challenges those who call on the name of the Lord. And it's why he is expressing them not to marvel at these things. Because it is not a simple thing that he is saying, but it's also not unknown to them. There is always going to be a reckoning. Otherwise, justice goes undealt with, doesn't it? How many of you know of unjust things that have happened to you in your life? It makes it even worse if it was at the hands of a Christian, doesn't it? 
How many of you know of unjust things you've done as a Christian? Makes it horrible, doesn't it? The reality of the resurrection from the dead is that is the place where God's justice will out. And what things that are wrong, that our courts miss, that secrets hide, will come to pass in the face of him who not only lives forever but knows all things. It is why Christians are told not to seek revenge for themselves. Why? One, it's not an ability we have to do well. And two, because God will take care of it. It is not calling on us to suffer even wrongdoing at those hands who persecute us. It is for us to depend upon God even though something comes and threatens our lives. You say, well, what if I perish? Let us depend on Christ. This is not a call not for self-defense or anything. I'm not even addressing those things today. Those are much more complicated issues. I'm calling for the realities of those who suffer against us. Yes, we use civil authorities. Yes, we use those things. The reality, though, is that our primary interaction with persecution is endurance and a deference to the judgment of God who knows all things. As we come to realize what Christ is continually addressing to us here, it is not that we simply know these things about Christ. It is that we depend on him no matter what comes. Why? Because his life extends through the grave, as we are going to see at the end of the Gospel of John. He himself passes through this and raises to walk again. The same as we will. We are promised the exact same. That he is the first fruits of those who will rise from the dead. And what that will be like, I cannot tell you. But we will no longer groan, suffer, cry, or die. We do know that. That alone means it is different in kind from anything you or I have ever seen. It's even different than Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They lived in innocence, not perfection, very different. They lived in innocence with a proclivity in the end to fall. We will live in redeemed perfection with no proclivity to fall or to sin whatsoever. Do you even know what it would be like to carry on a single day without temptation to sin or the ability to sin? Or the desire for it. And I don't even mean commission. I mean sins of omission. You will live in perfect concert with God who created you. Do you know what that's like? I don't know what that's like. Less than almost anybody else. I have no idea what that would be like. And yet we are promised such things. And it is not separated from the body. That's the thing that blows my mind more than just about anything else about the promise of Christ here is that it will not just be my spirit. Our culture has a real problem with this of thinking that spiritual is good and physical is bad. My friends, that doesn't come from scripture. That comes from Greek Platonism, Greek philosophy, on which a lot of our country is founded. The promise of God is an incarnate promise. Body and soul united as one. And the reality of death being an enemy is because it shreds that connection between them in an unnatural way. And that is why the purpose of resurrection is part of the complete promise of God to bring us to life it was as it was intended to be, physical and spiritual, in the presence of him who is only spirit. Let us look forward to that day. Let us not imagine that it is already present and hold one another to standards we cannot hold ourselves to or anyone else. It means we bear each other's burdens. It means we are gentle with one another. It means we are forbearing. It means we owe one another benefit of the doubt. It means we owe one another grace. 
Let the resurrection of Christ color your walk this week. Let his promise that goes past the grave that you and I almost certainly see, let it affect your fellowship with one another this week. Let it delight your hearts that one day you will enjoy God's creation with pure eyes. I don't know about you, but one day I want to smell grass without sin. Doesn't that sound bizarre? It's what I want more than just about anything. I want to know the creation of God without groaning. And here Christ promises us this. Believe on him and you'll see it. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for the promises of your word. We're grateful for Christ. We thank you, Father, that as we continually dive into your word, it challenges our very assumptions about how things would be or ought to be. Father, it teaches us how things will be and how things are. We thank you, Father, for what is established at the cross that you have so enacted that even a physical death carried out spiritual salvation and physical. That one day all things would be called in submission to Christ who created them. Now, Father, on top of that, the very hope of all eternity will be heard from our ears that have long passed and that we will rise from our graves and walk into the new life that you have provided for us in a new heaven and new earth. We thank you, Father, for the freedom that your law brings. We thank you, Father, that the law, though weak through our frailty, the gospel has come and has challenged us the deepest portion and says, not do this and you will live, but instead it is done, it is finished. Believe on Christ and you will live. We thank you, Father, for the freedom of the cross. We thank you, Father, for the gift that resurrection is and what a hope set before us. We anticipate that day with with great joy. In your son's name, amen.